The way you describe it, these themes are so universal, right? Since long before anyone heard the word transgender, these themes of longing for something that can give you certainty or cohesion when when the world is too chaotic and messy and big. And you describe both this kind of spiritual experience of finding faith in an ideology, as well as the kind of adolescent developmental experience of looking for something to hold on to that explains your identity. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. All right, Helena, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you. I am excited to be here. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Me too. So you are 23 and wise beyond your years. I've watched many interviews with you and you're so well-spoken and insightful. So I'm really glad to have you here. And hopefully we'll we'll get a few new pieces of the story um, that you haven't already addressed in your many other wonderful interviews. But if anyone's listening and just coming across your work for the first time, I hope that they will um, look into some of your other prolific interviews. So Helena, you are well known online for being a detransitioner. For those who are just hearing about this for the first time, can you explain what a detransitioner is? So basically detransition usually refers to someone who identified as trans and took some medical steps to transition and then ceased those medical steps or took steps to reverse them or stopped identifying as trans. So that is my experience. I identified as trans um, for most of my teenage years, and I started testosterone very shortly after I turned 18. And then I was on testosterone for about a year and a half, at which point I stopped the testosterone and I stopped identifying as trans shortly after. And you shared in some of your other interviews about the many factors going on with your mental health and your social world around the time you started identifying as trans. Can you share sort of the significance for you at the time of what it meant to have a trans identity and how it was that that gave you a sense of comfort or safety or belonging? Yeah, so I think that the the aspect of fantasy was probably one of the biggest and most comforting aspects. It was just the ability to feel like something completely explained me 
And that in the future, as long as I just kept following this one path, in the future, I would become a different and better person. I wouldn't hate how I looked anymore. I wouldn't feel awkward with other people anymore. I would be completely at one with my body. And it also, just because of the nature of the online spaces that I was in that were very centered around media, like fictional media, it also gave me a way to kind of fictionalize this identity that I was forming in my head, this trans identity of this different person, and kind of play around with these other fictional medias in my head, you know, inserting myself into stories or projecting my new identity onto a character that I already like. Lots and lots of fantasy and escapism because in my real life, I was having a really hard time with just really hating how I looked, terrible, terrible confidence, Shortly before I started trans-identifying, I went through just like a total loss of all my friendships, and I felt extremely alone, and yeah, I was just not doing well at school. I didn't see a future for myself, and I just didn't feel comfortable in my body at all or in my personality at all. So yeah, it just offered me a way to, you know, engage in that kind of fantasy with other people as well. So it was just kind of like this social, like co-fantasy thing that I was engaged in. The way you describe it, it almost sounds like a spiritual experience or something transcendent and otherworldly about both the opportunity to enter into this fantasy world as you did online with a new sense of identity And also the ability to kind of project into the future that no matter how dark this place I'm in right now is, there's something that can and will happen in the future that will redeem me, that will relieve me from my suffering. And this gives me a sense of meaning and purpose and belonging. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was like, you know, what's happening right now doesn't matter. I don't have to really, I didn't know how to make anything better at the time, but my trans identity kind of made me feel like I don't even have to try. I don't have to worry about what could be done better now or what kind of needs I have now that aren't being met. All I had to do was just focus on, I'm going to get this testosterone. The testosterone is going to change my body. And then at some point I'm going to be happy. Mm. That sounds very comforting. Mm -hmm. And there's one cohesive narrative, right? If the story is I'm uncomfortable because I'm actually trans, then mm-hmm. that's that's one story to encapsulate everything. And, and I can yeah. imagine that without such a cohesive narrative, being in that vulnerable position with your mental health and your social life and everything, I mean, would you say that without that narrative, you might have blamed yourself, like felt like there was something wrong with you instead of just your gender? I definitely did have a lot of animosity towards myself, and I think that that played a role in why this different identity appealed to me so much. But I also definitely think that it was kind of a lifeline for me, like as as bad as it turned out when I was actually able to get testosterone and, and like act on my transition, as bad as that was for me, I also think that as a teenager, like I really needed that fantasy because... The reality of what I was facing was very existential and it was very above me. Like it was above what I, as like a 14, 15, 16 year old girl could have really understood about my life. Like 
one of the main things that I was dealing with was a complex grief from my childhood that I had been told things by my family that were not true. And it was just kind of like, super, like just super confusing to me. And there's just no way that like a 14, 15 year old, especially working off of like incorrect narratives and incorrect information, like there's no way that I could have really understood why I had this like deep sense of like abandonment and sadness and fear. Mm -hmm. Like there's just no way that I could really understand that until now I'm, I'm 23 and I'm only kind of starting to like chip away at that reality. But as a teenager, I don't know what would have happened to me if I didn't have something to kind of grasp onto and Mm -hmm. to just like, I feel like it was a life raft for me. I wish that, you know, I had some adult in my life to kind of like help me with the real problems that I was facing instead of just kind of like pushing me towards this medical intervention and this transition. The identity itself and the fantasy itself, I feel like played a, a actual significant role in just keeping me going. Mm, That's really interesting. So if I understand you correctly, one of the things you were dealing with at that time was learning that you'd been lied to by your family. Well, actually, at this point, I didn't even know. All I had was kind of like the memories up until I was seven and then kind of like just confusion. And, you know, I didn't know why this person had left my life. I didn't, like, I I was told incorrect and, like, negatively charged things about this person Mm -hmm. that now I know weren't a very accurate representation of who they were. I just didn't know any of this at the time. All I had was, like, I guess you have these, like, body memories of, like, that Mm -hmm. attachment as a child and then the the loss of that and then like the grief that comes with that, but none of like the the information and like the rational narrative to kind of make sense of any of it. Mm-hmm. That's such a vivid description of of the actual child experience, right? That that felt sense and you don't necessarily have have words or a story to it. But again, mm-hmm. I'm hearing this kind of theme of something spiritual or transcendent, that there's a sense of loss, there's a sense of something being in the shadows or in the unconscious that you can't quite have access to. And there's mm-hmm. information that you eventually discovered was withheld, which probably resulted in some kind of breakdown in meaning. So I can I can almost see the parallels between the the sort of spiritual flavor of all of that and and the longing and the loss of that and the ambiguity with these mm-hmm. feelings that that came up in your relationship with having a transgender identity. Absolutely. And I think that for any teenager, any young person who is struggling with anything like that, it doesn't have to be exactly my situation, but just anything, you know, in childhood, maybe even like a, a parent's divorce or the parent's relationship isn't that great, or one of their siblings has a lot of problems, just anything that is too big for Mm. a young person of that age to really understand and start putting together. I feel like there can be this sense of like tremendous searching for an explanation and a longing for knowledge. And I think that then this trans identity and the kind of way that it's presented as, well, this is who you really are on the inside. This is the real explanation for why everything is the way it is. You just need to like grab hold of this and follow it and it will lead you where you need to go. Like it, it's kind of presented as this ultimate explanation in a very spiritual way of who you are, 
where your role in, in like the universe and the society. And I think that can be really appealing to a young person who is dealing with complex things that are kind of above their developmental pay grade to really understand. Mm. Wow, very well said. And the way you describe it, these themes are so universal, right? Since long before anyone heard the word transgender, these themes of longing for something that can give you certainty or cohesion when when the mm -hmm. world is too chaotic and messy and big. And you describe both this, this kind of spiritual experience of finding faith in an ideology, as well as the, the kind of adolescent developmental experience of looking for something to hold on to that explains your identity and gives you a sense of belonging. And you describe it as having been a life raft for you. And on the one hand, you say that you wish that you'd had a different type of adult support. And at the same time, within the realm of the options available to you, you see how necessary that, what, that felt for you to cling to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I guess the key here is how the adults respond, right? Because kids, I think, are going to come up with all sorts of ways to manage their feelings and their circumstances that are not in the long term the best way to really manage those things. But for most things, adults, even very flawed adults who don't really know how to like hold and manage a, a younger person's emotions, like they'll at least recognize that something might be maladaptive. But with the gender thing, it's like, no, like, and I think it's worse even now than it was back in 2016 when I first started testosterone. They're trying to get these kids the medical interventions as fast as possible. And I think that uh, when the medical intervention begins or when any sort of strong social affirmation begins and it leaves the realm of fantasy and becomes the real world, I think that's kind of when any benefit of that fantasy life raft kind of ends because that's mm -hmm. when what's being acted on in the real world and what's being done to that person in the real world is then compounding the confusion that they were turning to the mm -hmm. trans identity to try to explain. And then once you go through a few months or a few years of that just compounded confusion and maybe even you suffer health problems or you have permanent physical alterations that you can't reverse, that's just doing such a disservice to a young person. Um, so yeah, just I wish the adults were not making things ex exponentially worse for these kids. Mm. Okay. So there's a couple of branches there that I want us to get to both of them, right? So one is that clearly you're at a point in your life now where you don't believe that we should be medically transitioning young people. And you see a lot of problems with that. So I want to hear the part of your journey where you decided to stop taking hormones and stop identifying as trans. I want to understand what that journey was like. And I also want to bookmark that you seem to indicate the importance of understanding the fantasy and the life raft, right? You talk about the value of having a life raft. And it sounds to me like there's a message that you want to get across in there about the importance of exploring the significance of that fantasy, what it means to young people mm -hmm. to have this particular explanation for what feels wrong in their lives. 
because I, I had that strong fantasy. And this is kind of what I was getting at with how once it moves from the realm of fantasy and role play into the real world and action and tangible consequences, that's when it stops having benefit because that was my experience. The effects of the testosterone, thankfully, didn't leave me with any, well, with many physical body changes. And thankfully, I did not ever have any surgeries. But the mental effect of the dose of testosterone that I was on was just extremely detrimental. And it resulted in me being hospitalized twice for just, you know, very unstable, extreme behavior and Mm -hmm. thoughts. And yeah, I just completely was not myself. And so after these two hospitalizations, I, and, and just my life generally taking in a very strong, sharp downward trajectory where I went from kind of being like this suburban teenager who lived online, never tried alcohol, never tried any drugs, never kissed anybody, never like held anybody's hand, you know, barely had a social life, super just like naive and innocent to drinking all the time, trying drugs all the time, getting into sexual relationships that were not healthy for me, and then being hospitalized. Like I just really at some point realized that my fantasy when I was that suburban teenager alone in my bedroom of becoming this like cute trans boy and, you know, having all these trans friends and just like frolicking through the trans meadows and, you know, feeling at one with myself and being authentic and like blah, blah, blah. None of that happened. I just became kind of like a mess of a person. And so I just really realized like, what am I doing? Like I, I thought to myself, where has this gotten me? This has just been terrible. And I don't feel good in my body at all either. Like I feel more quote unquote dysphoric than I ever did as a teenager because now I'm actually trying to look like a man and I don't look like a man. And I'm trying to like go into the men's bathroom and, you know, use the bathroom next to like full grown, like 55 year old, like entire men. Mm-hmm. And so, and in, in my university, I had to shower with men and it was, I was just like horrible. It was horrible. So yeah, I just, I just like really realized that the fantasy was not real and it just mm-hmm. dawned on me and I felt incredibly stupid. And mind you, at the time there was almost no like detransition content out there. I found like one article by like a lesbian detransitioned rad femme And it didn't, I didn't relate to that at all. I thought that I was literally the only person on the planet who was going through what I was going through. And so it was like extremely terrifying and I felt so stupid. And like the the feelings of just regret and, you know, like flagellating myself in my head and just hating myself Mm -hmm. for what I had done were really strong. But yeah, it was basically just reckoning with the fact that I had made these terrible decisions based on this naive, immature fantasy and that nobody along the way saw what I was doing, that I was engaged in this elaborate fantasy. But to me now and at that moment as well, it seemed so obvious. So you've talked about the fantasy breaking, right? That 
that it gave you a life raft to be able to project onto the imagined identity of being trans, all of your longings, and, and that kept you safe because there was an out, there was a future world in which you didn't have the same problems. That kept you going. And if if it hadn't been identifying as trans, who knows what else you would have found or if you would have found anything. Clearly, there's things in retrospect that you wish you had, but also that was the best you had at the time, right? But then mm-hmm. bringing that fantasy into reality, actually getting on hormones, actually trying to live your life as a trans man, the fantasy shatters and that can be a dangerous time. And And hearing you talk about that reminds me of a similar time in my life. I had a really rough adolescence and I won't get into the details, but I can say I was really looking forward to heading to Hawaii on a one-way ticket for my 18th birthday. I had this whole mm-hmm. vision of how I was going to get away from all the problems in the world because I was an activist teen and I burnt out. And I was like, I'm just going to go camp on beaches and do yoga and like work on a permaculture farm and live lightly on the planet and just be in harmony with nature and everything will be great. And then I got there. And one of the first things I did when I got off the airplane was cry because I realized Mm. I've made it to paradise and I'm still unhappy oh no, (laughs) what's wrong with me? It's like, wherever you go, there you are. And now I had to face myself. And I ended up being able to have, you know, an amazing year and a half in Hawaii that was full of transformation. But, But that moment of fantasy coming into reality or similarly a moment of meeting your heroes and seeing that someone you'd idealized is actually human, those can be really vulnerable moments. And when people talk about mental health care for trans people, there's often this this emphasis on the idea that by supporting the trans identity and the medical interventions that they seek, that you're you're protecting their mental health care by giving them what they want. But you're talking about this other side of things where before we even get into any of the side effects or any of that, just the side of things of you had in mind that there was going to be the solution and that this was your explanation for your distress and now it's here that i mean if that doesn't go well <laughs> that that can be like an earth-shattering time for people and for you it was it wasn't what you hoped it would be it was scary and painful and difficult and you were hospitalized. So to whatever extent you're comfortable getting into this, because we don't have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about, but you did say that it really messed up your mind and body to be on testosterone and that you ended up hospitalized twice. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious what happened to you in the hospital, if they gave you a diagnosis, if if the if they linked the problems you were having psychiatrically to the hormones... What happened there? Um, Yeah, to my knowledge, they didn't link anything with the hormones or with the trans identity or anything like that. I was just, you know, like any other guy (laughs) in the hospital. Yeah, so that was very interesting. They definitely did respect my pronouns and everything. I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and I I don't think that's correct at all. I don't identify with that at all. I don't know. Maybe it was the fact that I was just having such like erratic moods 
one, I don't have any of those symptoms that I did when I was on testosterone because my symptoms that kind of like got me into the hospital was that I kind of stopped being able to feel my feelings in the same way that I had done before, which is to say that without testosterone, it's like I have, I guess, a range of feelings and some are worse than others and they're different feelings. But on testosterone, it was either numb or like so angry and confused that I would just kind of spin out of control. And I would just, I would not try to hurt other people, but I would hurt myself. So I would just have these like intense episodes where I would just hurt myself in kind of extreme ways and like black out and like not remember it. And just like, yeah, it was was such a horrible time in my life. And just after a particularly bad incident of this, my friend at the time asked me to like come with her to the hospital. And so I did that. And then they checked me in to the hospital and I stayed there for a week or a week and a half, something like that. And yeah, they diagnosed me with BPD. As far as I remember, and my memory from this time period is really shit, but as far as I remember, I mean, they did like an assessment. They did some sort of assessment on me where they asked me a bunch of questions, but yeah, it was just kind of like your standard like psychiatry situation where I didn't feel like they were really making that much of an effort to like learn about me. It was just kind of like, oh, okay, you seem like you have big emotional episodes. Let's prescribe you a bunch of benzos. (laughs) And yeah, so that's how that went. That sounds really scary to feel so out of control and not like yourself. And Mm -hmm. I mean, on the one hand, I do understand how someone working in a psych ward where they're frequently seeing people who have recently made suicide attempts. I mean, suicide attempts are very common in people with BPD. So I can understand how, you know, they're kind of like, oh, it's probably another BPD, but that's really a case of, you know, burnout and poor clinical assessment to kind of jump to the conclusion that someone has BPD because BPD is a very pervasive condition. It can be treated, but it's difficult to treat. And in order to really meet criteria for a diagnosis, there does have to be a pattern that has existed in multiple domains of your life across time. And it sounds like the system really failed you by not taking into account that you were taking testosterone and that you might be having an adverse reaction to it. It surprises me that Mm -hmm. people don't think about that more because, I mean, especially for women as half the population, given that we have monthly menstrual cycles, most of us know how much hormones impact us. We feel that in our own bodies. So it seems really Mm -hmm. strange to me that people would know that someone's taking cross-sex hormones, but not assess that as part of what could be going on with the mental health. What you've said is something I've I've heard from a lot of detransitioners that you felt like when you're on testosterone, you either couldn't feel anything or you felt really angry. Mm hmm and so the the behavior, I mean, it sounds more like acting out behavior. Like when you were on T, you had these mood swings and you would make your distress more 
known and felt to those around you than you did before? Or how would you put it? Yeah, it's just, it's really hard to explain. It's like, I would just get overcome with frustration to the point where it would just kind of like turn off my brain. And like, I just didn't know what to do other than like act out, I guess. I don't know how like graphic I want to get, but yeah, it was like, it was definitely not, I don't think that was in like the spectrum of normal human emotional reactions. I think that was Mm -hmm. definitely like a, some kind of adverse effect from the testosterone on my already kind of like not healthy mental and and physical emotional system situation mm. that I had going on because I, I had come from already having like a, a pretty much lifelong history of having you know emotional struggles and then just to have and if anybody listening has heard me talk about this before um, you'll know that my dose of testosterone was like much higher than they typically give people. They usually like will start you off on 25 milligrams a week and then move up to like 50 or maybe 75 and then more rarely 100. But for me, they just prescribed me 100 milligrams a week out the gate. That just, you know, it was too much freaking tea for me. <laughs> I just, I don't know if that's what like bodybuilders feel when they get roid wow. rage or something, but it's like a female with like, cause I guess like as a female, it's like when I would feel upset, I would normally just kind of shut down and like cry silently to myself, you know, mm-hmm. instead of wanting to lash out or, or yell at people or do anything like that. But then like on the testosterone, I would have this just like unbelievably overwhelming, like all consuming. It felt like my body was going to explode anger that I'd never felt ever before. And I've never felt since I'm not an angry person. I don't get, I don't rage at all. Yeah. But this just like explosive anger that felt like it was going to just tear my body open. And then like, I just didn't know how to cope with it. And it just, you know, it just hit my nervous system in, in some weird way. All of that to say, definitely, I don't think that's normal. I don't think that any healthy person would feel anything like that. If they took the amount of testosterone that you took, you don't think that they would feel that or? Oh yeah. That, that's what I mean. That like the testosterone mm. level for me was extremely unhealthy. That yeah. I, I don't think that's like just what men feel or something like that is what I'm saying. Right. Right. And we know yeah. that regardless of what people want to believe that cross-sex hormones have different impacts in people's bodies than the natal sex hormones. Did you, I mean, so you started off on a very high dose of tea and you're on it for a year and a half Mm -hmm. before you stopped. You started having Mm -hmm. these adverse reactions pretty early on. Did you recognize right away this is a side effect of tea or how did you conceptualize what was happening to you? I didn't connect it to the testosterone at all. I honestly didn't connect it to the testosterone until well, well, well after I stopped. When I kind of, when, when all of that when all of those symptoms stopped, like a few months after I quit testosterone, I was like, hey, I completely stopped having that like insane fucking thing that I was always having. So yeah, at the time I just like, I thought I was just crazy. Wow. I just, I kind of like, yeah, I just thought I was losing my mind somehow. And prior to taking tea, had you ever had psychiatric medication or counseling? 
Yeah, I, I tried antidepressants in like SSRIs in high school and I didn't feel like it did anything for me. So I just never like I never took them for an extended period of time. And I'd always been in therapy and stuff. Yeah, probably since like sixth or seventh grade. Okay, so you but, had therapy yeah. before you ever identified as trans. What was therapy mm-hmm. like for you? My my therapist was like a friend of my mom's and Oh, that's inappropriate. I don't feel like Yeah, I don't feel like she was very helpful. Like for example, one of my favorite stories to tell was like so I was struggling with an eating disorder. I was bulimic and I felt you know, just horrible in my body. I was obsessed with my weight and I was obsessed with, you know, how I'm fat and I can't, you know, I felt like I couldn't look people in the eye at school because I'm too fat and they're just going to laugh at me and, and all this kind of stuff. Like I was just like, and so I was telling my therapist about this and my therapist just told me like, you know what, you should not eat sour cream because that's where the calories are like going to get you. And so that's the kind of therapist that, <laughs> that I saw when I was in middle school. Mm. So she was like, she was not very helpful. Um, I mean, she was like a nice woman. I just don't think that she really like, I think she was a bit biased in favor of my parents. And she wasn't really like looking at the ways in which like my family dynamics were kind of hurting me. Um, I just felt like it was kind of like just, I, I didn't feel like it helped me in any way. Has anyone told you that we're not supposed to do that? We're we're not supposed to yes. <laughs> help our friends' kids, right? Um, yeah. At what point did you realize just how inappropriate that was? I think after I talked about this, I think it might have been with Sasha Ayad, either on the podcast or just on like a conversation with her. I was telling her about this therapist that I had, and she was like, she had the same reaction you did. She was like, "What the fuck." <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so you had this unhelpful therapist who, for anyone listening who wants to know the technical terms here, that's called a dual relationship, right? And so I'm just going to stop to explain why that's wrong. So therapists were supposed to be as objective as possible and not have any conflicts of interest. There are sometimes small communities where there's like one therapist in a town of 300 people. And of course, that's going to be different, right? But In general, most of the time, whenever possible, we want to have relationships with clients that are purely just a client-therapist relationship. Once a client, always a client. The laws vary state to state in terms of how many years after therapy could you potentially have a friendship with a client in a different context, but it's generally frowned upon, and there are usually pretty strict regulations around it to protect the clients. One of the easiest ways for a therapist to lose their license is to have an inappropriate relationship with a client. So in your case, I don't know your personal situation or what kind of license this is or anything like that, but just for anyone who wants to understand this, it's a conflict of interest if the therapist is friends with your mom. Because what if you tell the therapist something that's going to impact her friendship with your mom? Or what if your mom has an agenda for the way that she wants the therapist to provide therapy to you, right? There's just so much wrong with that picture, but you couldn't have known that because you were young. And then also the piece about you're giving signs to your therapist that you have an eating disorder and some body image issues, and the therapist just tells you not to eat fatty foods. (laughs) I mean, sure, there's a time and place 
for helping people understand what foods are nutritious and not, but that is totally not it. When you're working with an adolescent who has an eating disorder, you need to understand what's actually going on there and provide appropriate therapy. So, so much wrong with that picture. And I, I can imagine having had unsuccessful experiences in therapy that you wouldn't necessarily have a reason to think that therapy was something you should seek out when you had these problems in adolescence. Yep, pretty much. I stopped going to that therapist. I remember I was still going to her when I first started identifying as trans, but then at some point I just stopped going to her because I got introduced to my school psychologist who was very affirming. The original therapist, she didn't know about my trans feelings. I never disclosed that to her because I didn't I didn't f- feel comfortable with her. But yeah, then I found my my school psychologist and she like immediately affirmed me. So I started seeing her. And how old were you at that time? 17. So when you say she was affirming, for those who don't know, well, first of all, can we define gender affirming care? And then also, can you share what that looked like for you? Yeah. So gender affirming care basically just means that you take any young person's trans identity at face value and you affirm and confirm that they are that trans identity. So for me, that kind of looked like for this psychologist, I told her, I came into the therapy room saying, I'm a trans boy and my mom doesn't want to let me transition, but I really need to transition because I hate my body and I'm really dysphoric. And so can you help me transition? And she basically said, oh, I'm so sorry that your mom is transphobic. That's so horrible. I can't imagine rejecting my child just because they're trans. Let's look at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital gender clinic together. Wow. And so in retrospect, what do you wish had gone differently? I wish that there was, you know, just like a more exploratory approach of You know, you don't need to say like, no, you're not trans, you're a girl. That doesn't need to happen. But just, you know, like, I can see that you're struggling a lot with this dysphoria. Let's talk about that. Or like, you know, I can see that you don't feel like your mom is really hearing you and supporting you. Let's talk about that. Instead Mm -hmm. of just, well, let's automatically jump to how to get you to transition. And like, even worse is that, she had us do a family session with my mom. And like in the session, it was basically just me and the therapist kind of ganging up on my mom, telling her why I'm trans and you need to call me this boy name now and you need to call Mm -hmm. me he, him now. And I'm going to kill myself if I don't transition and all this kind of stuff. And it just like, my relationship with my mom was not good to begin with, but that kind of stuff I think did a huge disservice to my ability to kind of maintain a good or not maintain, but, you know, just I think it made the relationship struggles in the family so much worse. Mm-hmm. Like, I think therapists who kind of interject themselves like this on on the behalf of the like affirming the child, like they don't understand the kind of like nuclear bomb they're dropping on a family when they do that. Okay, those are powerful words. So let's explore (laughs) that further. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. 
You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. So, (laughs) all right, so you just said that a therapist who pushes, actually, I don't want to say, I want to hear it in your words. I mean, I heard the words nuclear bomb. You feel like therapists are dropping a nuclear bomb on the family. Tell us more about that. I mean, like in my experience where the therapist like had my mom come into a session and like antagonized her on my behalf that Mm. like you need to like you're like this is a boy. This is your son. You need to accept him or he is going to suffer like all these mental health issues and it's going to be your fault. And like that kind of approach, it's like oh my God, like I'm sure there's a lot of parents who might be listening who can imagine like how that might affect just like the family relationship and the family dynamics if there's like a third party adult who's kind of like doing that in the family, especially when maybe there's already like marital issues between the parents and there's just a strained relationship with the child and stuff. And it's just like, once a third party adult kind of comes in and like goes to war against the parent, then it's like it's so hard for that parent to even like reach out and extend an olive branch to their kid because their mm-hmm. kid is already like, okay, no, we're at war and these other adults support me. So mm-hmm. you don't matter anymore. Like my parents don't matter anymore. What they think doesn't matter anymore because all these other adults are supporting me and my parents aren't. So like it just, it's just really like, at least in my experience, I really feel like, not that I'm under any illusion that my family relationship would ever be great, but I really think that it just, like, that kind of, like, interference from a third-party adult like that was extremely harmful. Yeah, I mean, the way you describe it, wow. I I mean, for anyone in my profession or outside of my profession – to set the record straight, it's not our job as therapists to go to war, period. Like, that's just not <laughs> – there's therapy and there's war, right? Therapy, in my <laughs> view, is about peace, right? And peace is about understanding. And as therapists, we're, we're supposed to be able to have a nuanced perspective and not necessarily take everything at face value. There, There's a, a – huge difference between not taking something at face value and dismissing it, right? There's there's a world in there to explore about like, okay, I see that this is saying that it's about this. Now let's see what are all the various factors that are connected to this, right? That's That's called systems thinking, whether you're thinking about the family system or other aspects of the environment, or even in IFS therapy, internal family systems. So thinking about the system Mm -hmm. of parts that make up a person. We're supposed to be able to see things in context with nuance. And as far as families go, I think the intention whenever possible is to create more peace in the family. There are certainly times that it's in the best interest of an individual to cut certain ties 
And I'm not opposed to that. I help certain people make that decision. If you're leaving an abusive relationship and you don't have any kids with the person, great. Going no contact is a wonderful option. If you do have kids, there are techniques to help with managing the difficulties of co-parenting. There are lots of times that it's appropriate to decide that it's not healthy to have someone in your life. But when it comes to making that decision about family, I think that's a decision to be made very carefully. And it's a last resort after really evaluating are people interacting in good faith? Is there any possibility of repair here? Or has someone actually demonstrated consistently through their behavior over time that they're only going to hurt me, right? Because when, when you do reach that point, and it happens for some people of recognizing this person is only ever going to hurt me and I need to protect myself. That's that's a big moment and it needs to be arrived at carefully and it needs to be accompanied by a grieving process and a supportive community or at least a supportive therapist and a good friend. I don't think that it's something we should be rushing people toward. And so when I hear stories like this about therapists, I think that's called collusion. So Sasha mm-hmm. and Stella did an episode on collective collusion on their podcast, Gender A Wider Lens. And I love their description of this, right? So a therapist has a responsibility for evaluating their own countertransference. In other words, what feelings are coming up in me because of whatever I'm getting from my client, whether it's something that's really there or something that they are reminding me of for my own life. There's all kinds of reasons that I could have a particular countertransference. My job is just to notice and explore that so that I am protecting my client from me unintentionally acting out aspects of my countertransference that aren't helpful to them. This, this is an important part of most therapy and especially relational psychodynamic therapy, which is a big part of what I do. So when I hear a story like this of a therapist instinctively reacting, jumping to the conclusion that it's really right for this client to end a relationship with their family or to at least create such a big ultimatum or such a dramatic situation that that's kind of the only option possible. You know, when I hear of a therapist jumping to that conclusion or jumping to the conclusion that our clients need us to fight for them, or that we need to take sides, or that there's a victim here that we need to defend as the rescuer, getting enmeshed in that drama triangle, um, jumping to conclusions about who is the victim and the rescuer and the perpetrator, whether those roles are even real. It just shows a real kind of lack of insight on the part of the therapist. And I get that because a lot of us who get into this work we, we can be codependent people. We can be really soft-hearted. We've been through our own issues. We wish someone was there for us. And sometimes we try to show up for other people the way that we wished someone showed up for us, right? So if we personally have a history of abuse or neglect, maybe we have a longing to have been rescued by someone or protected, right? So then we see some vulnerability in our clients and we jump in like, oh, I got to protect them. I got to rescue them. Right? Or maybe we we had a really abusive parent. So then we see a parent who doesn't appear to support their kid's identity. We jump to the conclusion, this is an abusive parent. I need to protect my client. But it's it's a lot that really needs to be examined carefully with a good amount of self-awareness. And I hear that in your case, maybe that might have even been what you thought you wanted from your therapist at the time because your beliefs yeah. about yourself and life and your family at that time were that 
you were trans and you needed testosterone and you needed people to back you up and your family were bad for this, that, and the other reason. And some of them had to do with the current issue, but some of them had to do with whatever your family conflict was going back years. So your experience at the time might have been that you wanted the therapist to act that way, but that doesn't necessarily mean in retrospect that they actually did their job or that you got the care that you needed. Really well said. And I think especially because like there were like genuine unhealthy family dynamics in my family that would have become readily apparent in like a, I think a proper therapy setting where we talked Mm -hmm. about me and not just gender and transitioning. With this specific therapist, I wasn't seeing her for an extended amount of time. I only saw her for maybe like two months for her to create like this new axis of, of drama in my family without really knowing like what the family dynamics were like already. I just feel like that was really irresponsible on Mm -hmm. her behalf. And it like, I feel like that kind of thing like culminated in some even like heightened drama a few months after this, where it's just like, I feel like it was pretty traumatic to me. So maybe I am putting a little bit of blame on this therapist for that. But yeah, I just feel like there was a lot that she could have done to kind of like approach my situation in my family with a little bit more curiosity and compassion, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, like, just really like interjecting herself in a way that was completely inappropriate, especially for the amount that she knew about my family dynamics. Yeah. I mean, I, I think sometimes it is okay to blame therapists. I I personally believe that a lot of the responsibility for the crisis we see in gender issues right now does fall on therapists because it shouldn't be a young non-professional person's responsibility to understand all the inner workings of psychology and family dynamics and health. And I mean, it's our job as the adults with the professional background and expertise to not just to protect trans teens from their bigoted parents, but to protect vulnerable people in some cases from themselves or from predators that they may not be aware are predators or from ideas that are causing more harm than good. But we have to protect people wisely in a way that's able to meet people where they're at and see what things are about for them. And it sounds like in your case, there was so much that the therapist missed. And I'm I'm almost kind of picturing gender like this extra person in the room So if it was like you and your mom and the Mm -hmm. therapist, like gender is like the fourth person. And I'm imagining if I were in that situation, almost doing like empty chair therapy where you you have an extra chair in the room and okay, gender is sitting there. What do you want to say to it? Right. Or then you can go and sit in the chair and you can speak for gender because there's there's a symbolic representation there. And it's yeah, it's a form of triangulation that's normal in family dynamics. It's oftentimes the case that a third person or a third party comes into the family when there's a lot of distress, especially stuff that's not being dealt with as a way to channel emotions into something, right? So 
I've even seen like a husband and wife who had a relationship that was a little distant and cold channeling their affection into the dog. So the dog becomes a third person in the relationship because the dog is a safe party to have those vulnerable, warm, fuzzy feelings with. And there's all kinds of ways that children get triangulated between their parents, especially when there's divorce, but even when parents are still together, but their marriage isn't perfect, it's easy to put the kids in the middle of it. It's always easy to make someone or something the target of unfulfilled yearnings, of pent-up emotions, of various things, right? And in this case, it sounds like you just wish that that therapist had tried to understand who this gender person was and and what that person had to say and why they'd been brought into the family and what they'd been brought into the family to help the family deal with that the family hadn't been able to deal with on their own and that they might have gotten further from being able to explore this symbolically. I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. I just think that there's so much more to all of these young people's stories and there was so much more to my story than just the gender. I think that even though I only saw her for two months, I feel like there was a lot more that she could have uncovered about me in those two months, but instead it kind of seemed to never go deeper than the gender. Mm. Sounds like a lot of people really missed seeing you in the ways that you needed to be seen. So coming back to your story, you first started identifying as trans at 15, you started testosterone at 18, you took it for a year and a half. While you were on T, your mental health deteriorated. You felt really angry or numb. You were hospitalized a few times. You were diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. You were prescribed benzodiazepines. At some point, you made the decision to stop. And now, a few years later, you are well known for your advocacy around this issue of helping people understand detransitioners and their reasons for detransitioning and what you want parents and the mental health community to know about how we should actually be supporting these young people. So how did you get from there to here? What was the breakdown point at which you decided to stop T? And then what helped you get to this point that you're at in life now? Well... So I kind of had that process that I was talking about earlier where I just realized that the fantasy was not real and blah, blah, blah. But the actual thing that kind of made me officially decide to stop testosterone was when I saw a video montage of pictures of myself from the, pretty much around the time I started T to very recently at that time. So like a year and a half of time. And yeah, I just like watched myself kind of like transform into this different person, like different, much more unhappy, much like just unsettling looking person. And that just really was like the nail in the coffin for me. Like I just saw that this was not good for me. This was not, I got back in touch with like my younger self in a way almost where like, it felt like kind of my inner child almost was like, whoa, like that's not me. Like that's not who I was supposed mm -hmm. to grow up to be. And so it was like just a really intense feeling like that. And then, yeah, that's when I like officially realized that it was a huge mistake. And like I was saying, 
I felt like I was the only person that this had ever happened to. It felt like, you know, like the rug was completely pulled out from under me. It was an incredibly difficult time. And for six months, six to eight months, maybe, it was like completely horrible. I hadn't made any connections online or anything like that. I hadn't even really looked. And I just thought it was me and my ex-ish person um, who was also a trans man. And we had like a very weird relationship. She's also on D-Trans Twitter, so I don't want to go into that a lot. But we had a relationship for like four years. And she, when we met, we were both trans identified and she also detransitioned around the same time as I did. And so, yeah, for the first few months, it was just really terrible. Like she was the only other person that I knew that had been through the same thing. We both felt really horrible. We both felt like completely hopeless and terrible. Neither of us had good relationships with our family. So we just were completely unsupported. And I know from that experience that It's an incredibly vulnerable time for people. And I just feel like there's like just a serious mental health crisis happening with so many people kind of going through that phase. I do think most people like will kind of grow from it like I did. But also I think I got lucky in that I don't have any lasting health issues and I didn't have any surgeries that I regret. But I think that with that like strong level of regret and not having any support and, you know, having like your your worldview kind of shatter and break down, I think that that's such a vulnerable time for people. I'm lucky that I, you know, was able to make it through that time, but I know how scary it is. So I think that, yeah, that's just something that people... There, I think there's a lot of people who are in need um, who are going through that. But yeah, so I I got through that. And then, I mean, the rest of it has just kind of been like slowly kind of like just picking up the pieces and figuring out who I actually am. Because I didn't do a lot of that in a meaningful way as an adolescent. Mm-hmm. For my For most of my adolescence, I was living in this like fantasy world of being a trans guy. And to the point where when I applied to college, I applied thinking that I was going to become a plastic surgeon and do trans surgeries. And so, like, I just had no idea. Like, I never... It was like I was, like, 14 again from before I decided that I wanted to be trans. It was literally, like, my entire adolescence and, like, the the first few years of my adult life were kind of, like empty. And like, I didn't really Mm. develop the things that I almost needed to develop in that time. So yeah, the the rest of my time since detransitioning has really been like figuring out who I am and piecing together like my past, not just like the transition and stuff, even though that's like mind boggling to me, it's still like, it's hard to really like piece that together. Um, But just like my childhood, my adolescence, my family, all this kind of stuff is just everything played its own role in like how things have turned out. So definitely doing a lot better now. But yeah, I can't lie. The whole experience, I feel like has just been a lot to kind of recover from. That sounds incredibly rough. And I think one of the things I admire the most about detransitioners is that 
it's hard for anyone to find the courage and sobriety and humility to look at the decisions you've made and realize that maybe they were a waste. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you've invested some, you've invested years, you've invested money, you've invested hope, and you've put your body on the line. You, you've permanently altered your body. You've said you, you're grateful that you didn't alter it more than you did. But I, I think that as a therapist, I mean, I work with people in all stages of life with all different manifestations of taking their time, hitting bottom, taking their time, really confronting their own grief and realizing that something that they've put their time, money, effort, hope, anything on the line for is just not working out and having to grieve that I I lost all that time. And in your case, it sounds like it was back to square one that you'd, you'd been mm-hmm. on this journey for years of trying to develop an identity through being trans and developing an identity is one of the developmental tasks of adolescence and early adulthood. And so you're trying to do that as you should have been, but in this particular sociopolitical climate with these particular medical interventions being available with the way that you were thinking about it and the way the people around you were thinking about it, much of your process of trying to discover your identity got channeled into something that ultimately was not helpful for you. And so you had to go mm-hmm. through this kind of dismantling of your worldview and then back to square one. Okay, if I'm not a trans man, then who am I? And and I, I wonder, even for people who, let's say, fully medically transition and stick with it and never detransition, I also think there's still a point at which you realize that uh, gender identity is is not a substitute for a personality. It doesn't make up all of your character. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to what identity is. And Jordan Peterson talks about this. He talks about, you know, identity is not something that you can socially construct. It's not something you can come up with labels for. It's a process that develops over years. And it's not something you make up for yourself. It's not an internal sense. It's negotiated socially and developed socially. Identity mm-hmm. has to do with your roles and interactions. So I think even for people who end up being comfortable in having alternative gender identity, the years that they spend focused on that, they're still going to have to make up for that time figuring out, okay, aside from being a trans man, like what else are you? What's your personality like? What do you value? What kind of people do you like? You know, are you basing all your social interactions on people's gender identities? Because you know, what about people who share your taste in music or, you know, like your values? So yeah. I just, I admire the fact that you and many of the other detransitioners I've been learning from have been through that process because I see how difficult it is for anybody to go through about anything. And I hear that, mm-hmm. you know, better late than never, you had to pick up in your early 20s with where you left off at 15 and start discovering your identity again, but this time Mm -hmm. based in these experiences that shaped your character. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a more, it's a more real and more deep sense of identity that I have now. And maybe it's not as strong and bulletproof as I felt my trans identity was when I was in it, but it definitely feels more like rich and meaningful now. Mm -hmm. Well, I 
personally think you're going to go very far and I'm excited to see who you become because I mean, you're 23 and you've done so many brilliant interviews and you're so well-spoken and deep and thoughtful. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So we've talked about some really vulnerable stuff today. We've addressed sort of the significance of what it was for you to associate with a trans identity and how that was a life raft and what it represented spiritually, what it represented in your family, but also this kind of crashing down from fantasy to reality and how harsh it was for you to take these hormones into your system and then to eventually have to start over and change your sense of identity in this much different way than where you thought you were heading. I know you've shared some really personal stuff and I appreciate that. There's so much more that can be said on this subject and and you have said so many things. You did two episodes on Gender A Whiter Lens podcast and a lot of other interviews. So at the end, I'll ask you to share where people can find you. But for now, I wanna just open the floor to anything that you want people to know who are concerned for how they can help young trans-identified folks. So parents, teachers, therapists. The main point that I, I think a lot of people should understand is just that these young people are human beings who are incredibly complicated. Every single person is unique. They have their own unique personality, their own unique experiences. And anything that kind of tries to erase that in favor of anything really, but in this case, I guess it's just like gender identity that, oh, okay, this person has a gender identity, therefore they need to transition. I don't think that that is very compassionate or understanding to people and how complex and unique each person is. So I think that for any therapist or parent or anything, the real thing that these kids need, regardless of how transition affects them, if they choose to do that, is they really need someone who cares to reach out to them and to understand them and to ask them about them and to help them navigate whatever they're going through and to help them make sense of what they're going through. I think that as a teenager, I I would have benefited a lot from having an adult who just kind of like sat down with me and just talked about life and mm-hmm. asked me questions about myself and what I thought and my experiences and maybe kind of stayed away from the gender topic <laughs> mm-hmm. or any kind of political topic. But, you know, mm-hmm. just like what's going on? How are you feeling? I just didn't mm-hmm. have that really with an adult in my life. But I think that that's what I was craving so I think that that's really important for therapists. Obviously, you have a great avenue to do that. But I think a lot of parents sometimes think that, you know, they're not perfect enough or they're not good enough to really like connect with their kid. Like you have to send your child to a therapist because they have this big mental health issue called gender dysphoria. And I don't think that's true. I think that As good as therapists can be, no therapist will ever replace just like a loving, attentive, attuned parent, even if you're not perfect. And I think that this can be a great opportunity because a teenager isn't a child anymore. You can be a little bit more honest about 
your own self with a teenager than you can with a child. So I think that like as difficult as this may be for parents, it presents a great opportunity to for parents to be more honest and more vulnerable with their kids and to kind of like bridge that gap and to humanize both of you in each other's eyes. Mm-hmm. I think that that can be a really powerful and amazing thing. And I think that that is the way forward for both therapists and mm-hmm. families, just like everybody just needs to humanize each other and talk to each other and be honest. Wow, that's really beautiful. And hearing you say that makes me think about the breakdown in relationships that we're seeing around this issue. And I mean, breakdown in family relationships has always been an issue, but it just seems like you've really highlighted today how the thing that's called gender identity can be so many different things. And Mm -hmm. I think when it gets brought up, there's this this notion of gender exceptionalism, which uh, Stella O'Malley has has critiqued, right? That that as mm-hmm. if there's something completely different from every other human issue about gender issues, and that we have to treat it yeah. with kid gloves in this special way. We can't question it. I think a lot of therapists don't have adequate training, or the trainings that they did go to were like the one training that I went to on this that was just kind of teaching the rhetoric that we now know has been disproven about suicide rates and would you rather have a you know a dead daughter or a live son and all that kind of stuff and they were pushing the puberty blockers in those trainings so i think there's there's a lack of training for therapists on this specific issue but i think because it is so politicized therapists and other folks just kind of go oh well I can't possibly know what it's like to feel like I was born in the wrong body. And so I have to take this at face value. I have to believe this person's experience and just affirm them. And it's politicized and there's a fear of, you know, how you could be treated if you react any other way. But in that, we disregard our instincts, our instincts to reach out with compassion Mm -hmm. and understand a complexity of things, right? And when we say that, well, I don't know what it feels like to be born in the wrong body. First of all, we're we're implicitly agreeing with the existential view that there is such a thing as being born in the wrong body, which I think is up for debate. That's definitely like a spiritual and philosophical question. But we're also empathically distancing ourselves from the event, from the situation. Yeah. And one of my turning points in my interest in this issue was when I realized that I actually would have been one of the kids who identified as trans if I grew up in today's climate. I think a lot of people my age uh, who identify as cisgender and trans allies, they have this idea that I can't know what that's like. And so my job is to support people who have this minority experience, but leaving out the social context. Because when I look at what I understand about the messages that kids are seeing online, which you've done a lot of advocacy work, helping people my generation understand what's happening on Tumblr and Reddit and TikTok and all these corners of the internet, you know, if I had been exposed to those particular ways of conceptualizing gender and social issues and mental health, then I definitely would have latched on to a trans identity as a life raft just the same way that you did. Yeah. And I'm glad that I didn't have that option because I think I would have maybe permanently altered my body rather than struggling with 
what I was struggling with. So I think my point in saying all that, I know I'm getting a little tangential, is that I think we're too quick to rush to this gender exceptionalism that says, this is something I can't relate to and my job is just to understand and affirm it the way I'm being told to, rather than seeing that human dimension of, oh, longing for identity, longing for certainty and a narrative and a worldview and feeling like you don't fit in, all these relatable things, the struggle for identity, right? And and some of the mm-hmm. other social issues that you bring up in your other interviews about, for instance, if you grow up in a world that tells you that you're a boring cishet white girl or that you're not mm-hmm. oppressed enough, you're too privileged and therefore <laughs> that you deserve to get bullied and attacked and name called and dismissed, you know, how these social factors might affect a person. Exactly. And like, how does that sound to an angsty, depressed teenager? Like, you know, when you're a teenager, you're just thinking about how much your life sucks and how much everything hurts. And then to be told that you're so privileged that you can't have an opinion, like that's, mm-hmm. that's intense for a teenager. Yeah. And and when we really look at what could be going on inside for these kids and what you've shared was going on inside for you and for your peers, wanting protection from bullying, wanting to be told that it's okay that you're different, wanting to be Mm -hmm. told that there's, there's a future to look forward to, that there's an answer to your problems. I mean, all these things are so actually relatable. I think we have a job to kind of de-exceptionalize and to trust our instincts, right? Because a lot of the trans ideology is about distrusting your instincts. It's about distrusting the perception that someone is a woman or a man, for instance. But when it really comes down to distrust, to actually trusting your instincts, then there's something very intuitive about helping young people. This isn't a new thing. It's a new framework and it's a new set of medical technologies. And I worry about that because I think that these medical technologies are harmful as we're learning from the experiences of people like yourself who've had adverse effects. And we're going to see more of that in the future. And that's why I'm having you on my show. That's why I'm having other detransitioners on my show, because we're going to be dealing with the consequences. Wherever you stand politically, we are going to be dealing with detransitioners and desisters and people who have medical and mental health problems as a result from using these medical interventions. So people can call Mm -hmm. me a turf or a transphobe or whatever, but I'm like, okay, but these people are here and they need our help and more on the way and we need to understand them. And I think that therapists need to go back to trusting their instincts and relying on their training from things that, you know, maybe we're trained before the current understanding of gender, but that doesn't mean that some of the old tools don't apply just really understanding what this is about symbolically for people. And I think that by doing that, you can have a greater chance of identifying what the real needs are. And if we identify what the real needs are, then we have more opportunities for solutions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So tell us what you're up to now. You're in school and then where people can find more of what you do. Yeah, I'm in school perpetually unsure of what I'm going to do with my future though. <laughs> but yeah, we've got some interesting stuff coming up and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at, it's pronounced LaCroix. It's like just a stupid at that I made in like 2017. I've just never changed it because I can't think of anything better. 
but it's spelled L-A-C-R-O-I-C-S-Z. So that makes it very easy for everyone to find me. (laughs) Wink, wink. (laughs) Is it the same or different as the sparkly drink? The drink. Yeah, because I was someone like my friend told me to make a Twitter and I was like, well, whatever, I'm never going to use this. And I was drinking a LaCroix. So I typed in LaCroix and then that was already taken. So then I typed in LaCroix, but like made the letters a little bit different. And then I just made that my at. (laughs) And then all of a sudden I started gaining a bunch of followers on Twitter out of nowhere. And I was like, oh God, I need to like, and everyone's messaging me like, you need to change your name. Nobody like this. It doesn't make any sense. And I've, I've tried a few different, like, names on Twitter in my life, but none of them stick, and I always just come back to this stupid LaCroix, so, <laughs> yeah. But you know what, it's, it's, it's you and nobody cares, because I think you're, you're a little bit of a rock star in the, in the, <laughs> what you. is it, the gender apostate community. I have to say, I'm very proud of my Twitter handle. I, I love the fact that at some therapist was not taken in September of 2021. <laughs> like, because wow. I mean, therapists try to make That's themselves like, stand out. But like, if you think about how therapists are perceived from the outside, like most people see most therapists as like some therapists. I don't know. Some therapist said that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm like, I'm just going to roll with that. And I mean, it was based on the name of my podcast, which I love, but I... Out of, out of, you know, as much time in my life as I've spent feeling like I didn't have the right name for something, I'm very happy that I have uh, the Twitter handle at some therapist. <laughs> Finally, you got it. I can't wait for my time because that's like, I always struggle with naming. Like, I can never think of a name that works for anything. So I'm waiting for my time when I get my justice of finding a name that works. But yeah, your Twitter handle is good. Come. It'll come in the right <laughs> moment. My my strategies for making the things you want happen are to create the conditions for it. Ask yourself, if the thing I want were to happen tomorrow, would I be ready for it? And that'll usually illuminate what you need to do to be ready for it. So create the mm. conditions and then just relax. That's a really good way to look at it. I like that. So I think you already have the conditions in terms of having the following. And now you just need to relax and let the handle come to you. Yeah, maybe I should ask my followers what they think mm. my handle should be. Yeah, let them do the work. That's what for I you. did with my That's what I did with my trans name on Tumblr. I just like was like, "Hey, what do you think?" And then I had a poll and then I chose the one that got the best the the oh, highest wow. votes on the poll. Oh, yeah, you tell me literally. what it is? Or is, is uh, that it was Vincent. Hmm. No, it's fine. It was Vincent. Very fancy. All right. Well, you're Helena now, and it's been great to meet you, (laughs) Helena. Thanks so much for sharing your story. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. 
Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.